The Murder Shelf Book Club contains disturbing content related to real-life crimes. Listener discretion is advised. Cuddle up a little closer, love mine. Cuddle up and be my little Welcome back, Murder Shelf Bookies. I'm talking with Gary Sosnicki, author of The Potato Masher Murder, Death at the Hands of a Jealous Husband. He's been kind enough to sit down with us and talk about his book. Gary Sosnicki is the great-grandson of victim Cecilia Ludwig, and he worked at newspapers in four states during a 43-year career. He's received dozens of journalism awards for excellence from state, national, and international organizations. Gary won the Eugene Survey Lifetime Achievement Award from the International Society of Weekly Newspaper Editors and was inducted into the Missouri Press Association Hall of Fame in 2014. The Potato Masher Murder, Death at the Hands of a Jealous Husband, recently received the first place Walter Williams Award, the top award in the Missouri Writers Guild 2021 President Contest. Congratulations to Gary and Helen. Thank you. Before we get into the whole gruesome murder, I have to ask you what you think. Why did Cecilia marry Alvin? Boy, that's a good question. I, I don't know. There was a seven-year difference in age. Yeah. You know, Cecilia had been divorced for, for several years. She was living in a town that she didn't have much background in. She had been uh, raised in, after coming from Scotland, she'd been raised in LaPorte County, and she was living in Elkhart County two counties over, which would have been a great distance back at the, the end of the 19th century, early 20th century. Mm-hmm. And I just don't know. I, I, I can't even figure out how they met. I've heard you say that you think possibly they met in church. Yeah, possibly, because Alvin, Alvin was running a, a tavern. A year before they got married, he opened a tavern, uh, the Monument Saloon in downtown Elkhart, and he claimed that he was a good church worker. and Possibly that's so. I, I saw no evidence of that. But he claimed that, that he was a good church worker. And maybe they met in church. I don't know how else they would have met, because I don't believe she would have been hanging out in a saloon, even if she had wanted to back in, in that era. We know she was a bit of a, a runaround and certainly got out and enjoyed yes, her. She was. Yeah. But I, hanging out in a tavern would have been really yeah, would have been I, I don't think women would have been seen in a, a tavern uh, around 1900 yeah that, I mean I don't think men would have allowed it I mean it just was really just not acceptable yeah they were they were both lonely people obviously so I think that somehow they did meet in in Elkhart. I had a, a theory here I think she might have thought he was a catch he's a business owner he's got a bar in the center of a town it's a fairly busy thoroughfare. Yes. He's older. He's got himself established. She, you said he was working as a domestic, right, Cecilia? She was working as a domestic, right, for the Reverend Townsend. Yes. In her eyes, do you think this is possibly a step up? Possibly, yeah. I mean, she comes out of a terrible marriage. 
Yes. She's married at 15, seven months pregnant. Right. Your great grandfather, right? Right. He only beat her. It was the second husband who killed her. Right. Right. But here she has this terrible first marriage. So you, you like to think that people learn from their experiences. So she's now older. She's got her two children. One's living with her first husband and Everyone's living really with her parents. I don't think she saw the, I don't think she saw the daughter very often. Okay. So there she's separated from her children. Yeah. And here she meets this guy who's older, has a business, certainly has potential to become something. I think she might have looked at him as potentially a positive, even though she wasn't crazy in love with him. You say he was short, much shorter than she was. Yeah. Yeah. She was bigger than him. He was he was a fairly good-looking guy. You look at his picture, the mugshot, which is the one picture we have of him, but he was a fairly good-looking guy. And she was an attractive woman, so there may have been a match there somehow. And Alvin had never been married before, right? Correct. So it's not like he comes in with all these stepchildren or baggage, as we'd say. So he, he may have been a catch. I mean, he may not have been the most exciting man in the world to her, but... Not bad looking, has some financial prospects. I can see where she might have said, hey, this is not such a bad thing. Could be. May not have been aware of his temper. And like I said, she certainly had her own temper. Yes. You know, she's cussing, he's cussing, and, you know, they wind up butting heads rather quickly. But I wondered what you thought about that. Why would she pick him? Why did they pick each other? I don't know, but I think you've got a good theory. Good as anybody else's, right? I mean, you look back and you try to dissect these things. But I know I throughout the book, I'm like, why would she pick him? And that that's kind of the only thing I'm thinking. What are women thinking about in, in early 1900s getting married? And I'm saying she's not in the best circumstances. So that's kind of how I, I thought about it. Because at the time that, that she is murdered, they are living in-house. You said it was a new kind of up-and-coming neighborhood. Yeah, that was after they got thrown out of his mother's house. Right. And if, if you recall, after they got married, they moved in with with uh, Alvin's mother, who was uh, a widow. Her husband had uh, was a farmer who had died of sunstroke working in a in a field. They moved in with her, and she was accused of striking her mother-in-law and striking her sister-in-law within the period of about 10 days and the, and the mother-in-law threw them out of the house so had a, had a place to live and they lived elsewhere in in Elkhart for best as I can tell about a year we we tracked down the address of it and it's an empty lot now and then they moved to Mishawaka and Alvin got a, a pretty decent job after they moved to Mishawaka and bought a home on on payments or leasing a home or whatever the arrangement was they they claimed they bought it and it was a, a fairly new neighborhood in northern Mishawaka. So it seems to me like he's making an effort to support his wife and the family, getting a home, getting a job. He's working at the is it called a rubber factory? Yeah, that's the that's the, the common name for the rubber factory, the rubber rubber works. It was a Mishawaka woolen manufacturing company, which made rubber shoes, rubber boots and uh, interesting, I found out since the book was published that at the time that it, it that plant closed down in the 1990s, it was making Uniroyal tires. 
So it was a it was a long lasting company in in Mishawaka, but that's where he had a job as a shoemaker. Wow. Okay. So they get married. He's again they get a home together, and she's not behaving properly. I guess. So yeah. Doesn't have a great reputation. Yeah, I think initially probably she did after they moved there, but most of the episodes he he talks about occurred all oh, from 1903 on to the time of the murder. So actually, the the last couple the last couple of years, and uh, that's where he he found men in the house with her and two incidents. And I think that one incident is just I I find really interesting. He he went to work early in the morning. He, he says, I, I, I forgot my clock. So I, I assume he's talking about his pocket watch. Mm-hmm. And he came home from work about 7.30 in the morning to get his, uh, his clock. And he can't find Cecilia in the house, but he finds her clothes in their bedroom. Uh-oh. Uh, I'm, I'm guessing that the clothes are laid out on the a bed, but he finds the clothes in the bedroom. So he goes looking around the house for uh, Cecilia or, or Celia, which was her nickname. And they had a border in the house, which I guess was an additional way to, to make, make money. And his name was something similar to Smoke Minin or Smoke Miner. Um, it's never quite clear what his name was, but he goes into the northwest bedroom of the house and he finds Cecilia and Smoke hiding in a closet. And you know, he, he repeats the story, the exact date, 1903, and, and there's a date to it. And he repeats the story so many times, and it never changes. And the, but he finds him in the closet, and the implication always is that they were in a state of undress. He doesn't say that. It might not have been proper for him to say that, but that's always the implication that he found them there. And that, that story just fascinates me. Well, he had to have been devastated. I'm sure, I'm sure he was, yeah. That was, that's why that was just one one incident. That's that's what you call flashbulb memory. That it's just it's so emotional. It just burned into your brain, and you remember. I walk in, I see the clothes. I walk around, and there she, you know, that moment in the closet. In yeah. a closet, hiding. Hiding with a guy. What? He's here. Oh my God! Get in the closet. Get in the closet. Get in the closet. You know. You know, if they were fully clothed, why would they both be in the closet? Right. Yeah. You so, would just get in the kitchen. Get in the kitchen. You know. Yeah. Yeah, and he wouldn't think anything of it because he's the border and he's there anyway. But they right. obviously weren't fully closed. Yeah. You, you say that this is a book with no heroes. They are certainly, neither one of them are saints. Correct. Yeah, I can see where yeah. they're, they're both pushing each other's buttons and just it becomes very dysfunctional as it's going on. Yeah, yeah. there was the, the, other, the, the other incident that he talked about a lot was he came home from work and this was about five o'clock another day. I'm I'm guessing that their hours varied based on the on the season, that the factory hours that probably in the summer when it was really, really hot and there wasn't air conditioning, they started shifts very early and, and got off around noon or something. And and in uh, in winter probably they, they worked what we would consider a more normal shift. But he comes home from, from work one day about five o'clock and there's a traveling salesman sitting on her lap on a sofa and you know that manning key is the that what he was a traveling salesman for and i think that's pretty common salesman i don't i'm not familiar with the name manning T. I, I did look it up but you know there were 
door-to-door salesman through the years, and, and there still are to a certain extent. But he's sitting on her lap. And you think, well, that's strange, but no, she's a big girl, and and maybe that wasn't that strange. But that's that's another incident, and there are, there are further incidents like where where she would disappear for a week or two and go to South Bend and and live in a hotel or live in a boarding house. You know, what was she doing when she was in the South in South Bend? And and then another time where he goes to he finds her, he follows her to South Bend. Uh, I think it's a Saturday night or a Friday night. And sees her riding around in a in a carriage in a buggy, yes, with a guy, yeah, at about ten, eleven o'clock at night in a in a park area near a lake. So, you know, she she had some problems. Yeah, she's got some issues, and he's got some trust issues, which of course feed his suspicion yes. and his paranoia. Yes. So they're feeding the negative qualities in each other as this starts to escalate. And now, on top of all this, you're going to throw Jean, Jean. into the mix. Jean, Sister Jean, uh, I think she was uh, four years younger than Cecilia, and mm-hmm. uh, she has two children. Her marriage is breaking up, too. Her husband is is a, a mining engineer, and they went out to California looking for, for gold, and then are, are in Nevada uh, looking for gold, and... Uh, uh, she leaves him this this one summer with her two young children and goes to Mishawaka and moves in with Elbin and Cecilia. And supposedly she's paying $10 a month rent, but she never never pays any. No, no, not at all. And uh, they just feed upon each other. Uh, I, I, I think she was the straw that broke the camel's back because they, they're never at home. They're well, they get, about they, now she's got a partner in crime to go out and play yes. with. Yes. If you're already engaging in bad behavior and now you've got someone to sit there and go play with you too, you're going to deny to each other that you're acting as bad as you are. Oh, that's not that bad. We're only going for a walk. Oh, we're only going to go buy shoes. Oh, we're only going to go chat. Oh, we're only going to, and you're going to justify to each other that what you're doing isn't that bad. And he's just, he's just being an old stick in the mud. He's just, you're going to justify as you, oh my gosh, I mean, Alvin didn't stand a chance. They they wouldn't take him with. He said, I, he said, I don't mind you going out as long as I could go with you. You know, maybe two or three times a week or something or on Sundays or something if I could go with. But they didn't want him to go with. And then you're introducing you know, this other guy, this Fred Young, who grew up with them in, in Kingsbury, Indiana. And and suddenly you've got this young guy, presumably good looking, who they know, who's hanging out at the house all the time, and they're hanging out with him. And Alvin is terribly suspicious of Fred Young. Now I don't know how you feel about this because you've studied the book, but personally, I feel that Fred has got a thing for Gene. The oh, I think so too. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I think they're they're a, a couple. He's a, he's a widower, and and her marriage is breaking up, but. But Alvin suspects that, you know, he's got a thing w- with uh, with Cecilia. Well, why and, wouldn't Alvin think he's got a thing with Cecilia? Well, is Alvin a suspicious of everything by this point? Yeah. And Cecilia's complaining that, you know, every time I, I get up, get dressed, go anywhere, he's accusing me of doing all these things. Well, that's based on finding you in the closet. As you are, yeah. On your lap and riding around yeah. in buggies with other guys and then telling him he's an SOB and a liar. 
You know what makes me really uncomfortable is that I feel like I'm defending the murderer. <laughs> and that's really uncomfortable in true crime. And I don't mean to be doing that, but the two of them are in this relationship. And it works both ways here. It does. You know, and in true crime, one of the things that I very much try to do is be really protective of the victims and their families and to, to make sure that I'm not doing anything exploitive that and not making a buck, you know, on these tragedies. I mean, I don't want to do that. But this story has got such a different dynamic to it. And I give you a lot of credit for telling it truthfully. If somebody else had stumbled onto the story, I'm not so sure that they would have been talking about Cecilia and Jean running about and being caught in closets because the victim bashing thing. But it's the truth. This is feeding into their dynamic, which is going to have a tragic end. And it's the truth. It needs, it needs to be addressed. And I applaud you for that. Right. Thank you. That may have been because I'm a newspaper reporter by, by trade. And I just looked at this as a, a newspaper story that kept going on and on and on. Obviously, you're used to doing newspaper stories on deadline and there was no deadline on this. I just, I just kept researching and researching and researching. And I didn't have a, I didn't have a preconceived notion to it. I just tried to write it fairly as I would a, a newspaper story. And I'm, Kind of gratified that a couple members of the Ludwig family who helped me with this, this would be Elvin's relatives, um, not, not direct descendants of him, but descendants of Elvin's father, actually, or, and, and uncles that, you know, they thought it was, was fairly done and were, were pleased with the story. Yeah. Well, I think you did a great job with it. I Thank think you. a lot of people would have ducked all of that and we wouldn't hear too much about that. And I think it's a really honest appraisal. And I think you have to look. It's this marriage. It doesn't mean every marriage at the time was doing this. But this couple had this dynamic. And it all fed into this this terrible outcome. You know, we talk about the defense and the prosecution. And they have two different stories about how Cecilia meets her fate, which is an interesting conversation. I want to have that with you. But I'm going to ask you what you think actually happened, because the prosecution is telling us what they have a fight the night before. Again, she's running into town, hanging out with this Fred Young again. Um, and Ackerman, the bridge man. Oh, my gosh, the bridge man. The, the night before. Yeah, that, that kind of spurs it on. Farther because Albin is, is following them into town. Supposedly he's looking for his dog, but you know, it, it doesn't pass the smell test for the dog to have wandered all the way across a bridge to the main business district of, of Mishawaka. And he, he's standing underneath an awning at a, at a hotel, the Milburn house, and he's watching a Cecilia and Jean on the opposite street corner meet a man. And the man, the man's name is Ackerman, and his first name is lost to history. All we really know about him was that he was a fairly good-looking man. He was about 23, as uh, not that not that much younger than, say, Gene. And, and they're talking to this man. And uh, as I, I'm sure you've read, you know, Albin's at the corner, and he sees a, 
he sees a policeman uh, leaning on a, against the telegraph pole at the corner. And he tells the policeman the name of James Anderson. He mm-hmm. said, you see those women over there? Well, it's, it's dusk. You know who they are. And it's dusk. And the patrolman Anderson walks halfway across the street in order to identify him. And he, he comes back and says, well, that's your, that's your wife and his sister. And he says, I, I see them around town all the time. And of course, Alban is thinking that, yeah, you, 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 like, yeah, I know you do. Jim, you all the time. And Alban tells him, I'm going to read this now. I am going to put a stop to that, and if anything happens, I want you to remember it. So, you know, whether that means uh, he's going to kill her or whether or more likely that there's a divorce. So he watches that, and then and then they go up the street, and so you've got this single guy, Ackerman, and these two married women. They go up the street, and, and they go get Fred Young. So, you know, the, the stuff that's happening the night before is, is, is just fascinating in that the uh, Policeman tells Alvin, you know, you need to go back home. And, and he does, but they get back home. Ackerman disappears, but Fred Young and the two women go back, go back to East Marion Street in Mishawaka and, and they spend the rest of the evening talking, but half of the time they're also arguing. And, and the neighbor hears, hears arguing going on, you know, through the, the houses are fairly close together. It's just fasting that night. What what's happening? And, and the women are still talking at, at midnight. Uh, Fred Young finally leaves about eleven o'clock, and and then the next morning, all heck breaks loose. And Alvin doesn't let it go. The Ackerman no. Richmond thing. He talks to what two different people about it the, the day of the murder. Yes. Yeah, Did you? Yeah. You know, he talks Mr. to Mr. Patterson. Patterson. Yeah. I don't know why Patterson would see him, but you know Patterson would have had to have been downtown. But yeah. He does. He goes, and he, then he goes to see uh, uh, Fred Metzler and, and gives him a half a bottle of brandy that he drinks. And that and he says, "I'm going to kill myself." And, and uh, oh no, Alvin, don't don't do that. And, and uh, Fred Metzler, not to be confused with Fred Young, tries to tries to calm him down and uh, says, "Let's go see uh, an attorney. We'll go see a lawyer." Well, who do we see? And he he suggests a guy who who he knew, and they were going to go see an attorney that that night. Without uh, Cecilia knowing about it. Without Cecilia knowing about it. They were going to go yeah. separately. And, uh, of course, the, the the murder occurs and they don't go to see the attorney that evening. Yeah. Yeah. I call that right fighting. That Albin knew it happened. Cecilia and Jean were both saying, no, 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 no bridge man, no action. He knew it happened. And it didn't matter that he's going to wind up murdering his wife and setting her body on fire. but. She was with Ackerman. I'm right, and I'm going to be right. Doesn't matter if I've killed my wife, set her on fire, or whatever. But there was a bridge man, and she was talking to. Him. And you know, I, I browsed through the book again yesterday, and uh, I saw a line that I had written that I hadn't remembered, and it was quoting Fred Young as saying he did not think that Cecilia had met Ackerman before. But he thought Gene had. Yeah. And I had forgotten. Obviously, I, I knew it at one time because I wrote it, but I had forgotten that. So Gene and Ackerman may have been an acquaintance. Yeah. But again, in his paranoid suspicion, Cecilia knew every man that she yeah. walked past. Yeah. She knew everybody. He's so hypersensitized to this 
that she knew everybody and she probably didn't know the guy, but in his mind, he's, he's so hyped up about it that you can feel this tension in him building to the point where he's now suicidal. And remember, Joe, that he'd gone to the, the South Bend, I think it was the South Bend Tribune, one of the South Bend newspapers. He'd gone to their office the week before and wanted them to do a story about his wife walking around with two traveling salesmen. So that's yet a whole different episode because that happened a week before all this. He's going to shame her into stopping this. He's going to shame her. He's going to shame her and no one will want to be associating with her. Because she's a runabout. And he's going to publicly shame her because this has been proven. His story, he's right fighter. He's, he's going to stop that. And that didn't work. Well, the newspaper didn't do a story for one thing. Well, no, good luck. Can you imagine? I mean, they did some crazy stories back then because I was to looking up some of the articles that you referenced. Yeah. And I mean, they did write some crazy stories back then. Yes. Having been in the newspaper business and having owned small town newspapers for for a lot of years, we did have people come in with some crazy stories at times too. We did have, and this is a whole different subject. But uh, Helen was alone in the office on one Wednesday when a uh, a fella came in and referring to a certain murder that we had covered and, and said, "Hey, I'm the prime suspect in this murder. You want to talk to me?" And uh, and Helen said, uh, "You know, can you wait until Gary gets back here? Yeah, just hang on. Just, yeah, sure. I'd love to yeah. talk to you. <laughs> yeah, you bet we do. But you know, just just wait till there's another person here. Yeah, please. Yes, thanks a lot. Thanks for stopping by. Yeah. Oh, so so they're fighting that morning. Yes. And he goes. To he school. didn't go to work. He stayed. He stayed home." Of course, he complains about them not having breakfast for him, but then it comes out, well, they hadn't, uh, she hadn't made breakfast for him for a year, so, you know, he really didn't. He's getting up at 3 a.m. normally to go to work. I'm sorry. I love my husband, but if he goes to work at 3 a.m., I am not getting up to make him breakfast. And, Jill, how did he sleep till 9 o'clock that morning? And that makes no sense to me that, that with all of the stress going on, how did he sleep that late to 9 o'clock in the morning? Short of him being up talking to himself all night and then possibly just you know, nodding off the last couple of hours, it's it's a mystery. Yeah. So, you know, they they get together. They're, he he goes downstairs and they start talking about about breaking up. And he doesn't want the marriage to break up. He he still loves her and he proclaims his his love for her, but. If she wants to leave, you know, she can leave. He's fine with that. If she's going to leave, he would prefer that she just leave for a period of time and come back, which she had done in the past. But she says, well, I'm, I'm going to leave. I would leave if I had a trunk. He says, well, again, I, I don't want you to leave, but yes, you can, you can use a trunk. I'll, I'll get you my trunk. See, that so, to me is really strange. Because you say he loves her, I think he is obsessed with her. If you love something, you let it free. If it comes back to you, it's your, you know, that kind of thing. I think he's obsessed with her. I think that if I can't have you, nobody can kind of thing. I mean, it's a cliche, but it's also not. And I think he, he did want her to stay. And if he could keep the norm, 
which is that she does go away for a few weeks or whatever and right. come back. Come that's, back. That's fine. Cause she, yeah. she, but she was packing to, to leave. Yeah. She, this is the line. She has drawn it. She's now leaving. And he starts to get that, that she's leaving. And that's why he tells him she's leaving. I don't know that he is making that connection, but I am certainly making that connection. He may not have consciously been saying, oh, this is it. But this is what's propelling his behavior at that point. The yes. point, there must have been something said at the dinner table, which you and I would call lunch. Yep. At the, at the noon meal, there must have been something said to set him off. Definitely. Where he grabs the potato masher and chases her up the stairs to the second story where the, where the bedroom is and knocks her on the head with the potato masher and knocks her unconscious. So it's a pretty good, pretty good wound. You know, the coroner said you could stick your thumb into it. So that's, that's how it, it wouldn't have killed her, but it certainly could have knocked her unconscious. So something, something had to have been said. At, at the table, or if you if you start looking at the defense theory, or he realized that he had been poisoned with the coffee, which was the defense theory that the coffee tasted peculiar, and had she poisoned him. So it it's fascinating story either way you look at, it. and the defense theory is really a pretty good theory up to up to the point of death. Yeah. It, was a pretty good theory. You know, the prosecution theory is that, that he, he knocks her in the head with a, with a potato masher. He drags her into the closet. It's a walk-in closet. And if I was in the right house, I've, I've been in that closet. Although now I'm not so sure it was the right house, but yeah. <laughs> they changed the house number. I mean, right. the more I look at it, I'm still, the, wind, the windows don't match. So he drags her into the closet. At one point, he starts slicing himself up with a razor. His neck and his arms and his hands. He starts doing it. The one theory is that he does that at, at the point that she's unconscious because he goes back downstairs and there's bloody handprints on the railing and on the door casing. And supposedly then he gets, he, he fills up a can of, of kerosene or gasoline. And brings it upstairs. He pours that on her and he, he lights her on fire and closes the closet door and puts a rocking chair in front of the closet door and then lays down on the bed or lays down on the floor. Uh, I think they found him on the floor while she's unconscious and burning to death. But the defense theory uh, wasn't a bad, a bad theory. Right. That, that he, uh, he felt sick. From drinking the coffee, it could have just been stress if he felt sick. But but he felt sick, sat on the porch, came back in, went to the back of the house and got the chamber pot where it had been sitting since morning, which means they didn't have any plumbing upstairs. They got the chamber pot in case he threw up, brought it upstairs, laid on the bed, and then suddenly he he thinks, oh my God, there's an insurance policy. I'm I may be dying here from coffee being poisoned. That rings very true to me. Yeah. Where's the insurance policy? And he looks in the, in the dresser. Uh, there's a dresser right next to the closet door in the bedroom and he can't find the insurance policy. So then he says, Cecilia maybe took it with it. Mm -hmm. And, and then he looks in the trunk, which is 
almost fully packed, and he goes through the trunk looking for it. So then she comes upstairs, and again, this is the defense there. She comes upstairs, and she's carrying the potato masher. And and your listeners need to realize, this is not the potato masher that, that your mom had in, in the kitchen drawer that got stuck when you were trying to open the kitchen door. <laughs> exactly. Uh, which, which everyone said, no, this is like a baseball bat. Yep. Like a, like a small baseball bat. Uh, you know, maybe a, a foot long, but it, it's a heck of a weapon, like a, uh, like a police baton, an old fashioned police baton. But she's carrying the potato masher and she says, what are you, what are you doing? And he says, I'm looking for the insurance policy. And she swears at him, you know, you, you SOB. And he said, what about the, uh, what about the property? And she's talking about the house, the belongings in the house, because it was fully furnished, and uh, which they're they're paying for. And he says, if we're divorced, never use the word divorce, but he says, if, but it means if, if we're divorced, you, you get half. And she says, no, I want it all. But, you know, this is all believable up to this point. Yeah. And he said, well, only if a court says you can have it all. But, you know, as far as I'm concerned, you, you would only have half. And he said, you SOB and, and not in the acronym. You know, she, she says mm-hmm. it. And, uh, she takes a swing at him with a potato mash. Again, this is believable. Mm-hmm. And he grabs the potato masher from her and it falls on the floor and he grabs her by the neck and he pushes her into the wall where there's a hook. These hook things there where that you would hang clothes on, wire hooks. Yep. And I remember them in, in my grandparents. I do too. And, you know, I, I went and bought one as a, as a prop at Lowe's. This is the, this one I'm holding up. Of course, your listeners can't see this, but this one I'm holding up right now is the closest thing I could find at Lowe's to the old fashioned wire hook. But he pushes her in against the wall and the, uh, her head hits wire hook. And according to the defense, that creates the wound that the prosecution hey, says that left side. By, the, by the potato masher. And uh, he chokes her. He chokes her till she's unconscious. And she falls to the floor. And his theory then, his explanation is that the kerosene lantern that he was using to, to light the, the room falls. And that's what causes the fire. And then he doesn't remember anything. For, for someone who remembers the exact date, that Cecilia and Smoke were in that closet together. You know, he doesn't remember anything that happened after that. Now, I, that's where I think his, his story falls apart, because that closet door was closed. It there was closed to, and barricaded. Right. And there had to be an accelerant more than just falling out of a kerosene lantern. There had to be quite an accelerant on there for her body to become completely charred, to be like the fire chief said the she looked like a hard-baked chicken, that it had to be an accelerant. So I think the theory was good, but the prosecution theory was better. I think the lamp falling may have given him the idea to get more kerosene, that it wasn't going to be enough. I mean, that's a possibility. So you're saying that if his theory would be correct, then then he went and got more kerosene. That's why he went downstairs, because that's not going to be enough. So he goes downstairs, he gets more Kerosene pours it on her, shuts the door to contain and to intensify the fire. Because at this point, his mind is gone. He is in a rage. Yep. 
He's going to really, and, he's not going to kill if, her. He's going to really kill her. And if that had happened before, before he carved himself up with the razor, you know, the blood around the house very possibly could be from rescuers handling, it could be. handling him. Although they took him out the front window. So it isn't that they carried him down the stairs and her bloody handprint yeah. on yeah. there. Yeah, I think he may realize, you know, the lamp may have fallen, broke, started a fire. He's cutting himself up and he realized that's not going to be enough. Not completely clear here. I mean, it's not like he's very rational making these clear deductions. And I think that may have happened. There are so many questions that I have every time I, I read through it again. You know, there was, there was no fingerprint technology, so we don't know whose bloody fingerprints there were. There's no blood typing or, or DNA fingerprinting like we would have today. There's, there's no test to determine what was in the can because the witnesses would say, one would say, well, it smelled like kerosene. One would say it smelled like gasoline. Another one would say it, it just smelled like smoke. You know, if there had been no flammable in the can, then that might have given more credence to Albin's argument that, right. that it was it was from the kerosene lantern. There was no test to determine what was in the coffee cup. That is the question that I am still stuck on. Did she poison him? And I suppose that that could have been either way. Now, he had a burned throat. He had throat wounds. He was poisoned. Did it come from the coffee or did he drink from that bottle of glycerin glycerin that she had gotten the night before? So one way or the other, he was, he had injuries due to to having poison. You know, today there would have been a a test to see whether there was blood on the potato masher because that was discussed. The scene was not secured. Oh my gosh. Gustav is the one who finds the broken, supposedly, the right. broken lamp yeah. in the closet. Yeah. And then he testifies the evidence. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, the brother of the of the defendant is yeah. the one who cleans out the closet, and then he gets to testify about it. So there's, there's so many questions that today... We would know so we much would, more. We would know more about it. It wouldn't have made as good a trial as it no. was. It was no, it was... Trial. Fascinating. Absolutely. That's why it's such a fascinating case to me. The attorneys did such a great job. They really did. And I loved the questions that they were allowed to ask that were objected to. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. I mean, I lost an objection. Objection. And then arguing back. It was just, they did a fabulous job. I was so fortunate. You know, there wouldn't have been a book if we hadn't found a trial transcript. And that was really a challenge because... My wife and I went to the St. Joseph County Archives in South Bend looking for the trial transcript. And, you know, we, we never actually saw a person. We were just shouting to someone back in the warehouse. <laughs> and they said, well, we dispose of felony cases after 55 years. So I thought, I thought, oh, well, shoot. Yeah, I've got lots of newspaper clippings, but there's probably not enough to write a book. I didn't really know where I was going with this at that point. And then I'm exchanging emails with uh, an archivist by the name of Michael Vettman with a, a V as in Victor at the Indiana Archives and Records Administration. I had found the mugshots that are on the, that are in the, in the book, the, the mugshot of Alwyn and the mugshot of his brother Gustav, which is a whole nother story. 
So I'm, uh, I, I bought those mugshots and I'm exchanging emails with him and I, and I said, thank you very much. If by any chance you're ever in the Indiana Supreme Court files and stumble across the uh, trial transcript because this case was appealed to the, to the Indiana Supreme Court. Apparently there was no appellate court in those days. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, let me know because I'd really be interested in, in the trial transcript. And it couldn't have been but a week later, I get a phone call, you know, not email, a phone call. Mr. Sosnicki, I've got it. Holy cow, we've got a trial transcript. And we've probably got a book now. Probably, we probably have a book. And you do have a book. Well, yeah, Albin is a a mystery to me. He, He does get convicted. Yes. And does appeal. What was it, 37 clauses? In his wanting of an appeal, I think it yeah. was. They spelled his name Alvin instead of Albin. Yeah, which was pretty common mistake back then. Well, sure it was. I loved yeah. the way you, you followed up on everybody in the trial. And that became such a soap opera. It was absolutely delightful. After this ghastly murder, to be following what that, that I call that section of the, the podcast, Cecilia's Curse. Because it was like everybody who got anywhere remotely connected to this just exploded. I mean, their lives just exploded. It was fantastic in, in that fascinating true crime way, fantastic, not actually fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> and there's that catch-22. You're, you're sitting here studying a ghastly murder, and you love it. <laughs> Which is like, but true crime people, we, we know what we need. I mean, we don't love the murder. It's a fascination because you want to understand the behavior. And the more you look at it, you're hoping to get a little bit more insight and understanding how the heck did that happen? Right. But it was remarkable. You know, fantasy stories and fiction has nothing on the actual stuff that happens. (laughs) It it really doesn't. I'm so glad you included that whole follow-up on what happened to Prosecutor Talbot and what happened with Gustav. Well, that was that. That was interesting, and originally that was that was part of the the main book. And during the publishing process, or while I was while I was being considered for publishing, both of the external readers of the book that uh, Kent State University Press had read the book to get a, an outside opinion on on the book. Both of them suggested that either those two chapters be eliminated or moved to an appendix. Because they interrupted the flow of the case, which was, yeah, which was really correct. Because if you've got in the middle of all this, you've got a chapter on Gustav, the, the brother, and he's just a burglar. He's not a murderer. You know, that would interrupt the flow. And Talbot is a, is a fascinating story. What happened to, to him? But, you know, that would have interrupted the flow. So we we'll move that to the appendix. I found it absolutely fascinating. Just when you think, how much bumpier can this be? You have this happened, and then the, I, I don't want to ruin it for readers. I talk about it a little bit in second cast, but holy mackerel. Did you find it fascinating that all of these attorneys were being disbarred back then? Yes. But, yeah. That, it seemed like every prosecuting attorney, someone was bringing up charges uh, in order to disbar them. Yeah, and yeah also, but then you didn't have to actually have your license to... You didn't have to be an attorney to be the prosecuting attorney. I think someone says that you could be the uh, 
baker, uh, a candlestick maker, yeah. or whatever. And Which you was amazing. I'm like, you can disbar me, but I'm still going to be the prosecutor. Nah, 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 nah. It was, and, I was just amazed. It's just, oh my gosh. And, and fascinating that all these allegations are being made against Talbot. And he still, he, he only loses the reelection by 800 votes or so. That okay. And that's, that's probably why they wanted to change a venue on, on that case. And, and they changed it to a county where they really didn't have the people who wanted him out, where they really didn't have any pull at all. And, uh, and Talbot got off. But it, it's a sad ending for, for Talbot. Well, that's why I called and, it uh, Cecilia's curse. I mean, I don't yeah. know if it was her fault or not, but it just was intriguing to me. Listen, it's a phenomenal book, and I want to know, are you now going to be a fixture in true crime? Are you writing more true crime books? My wife says no. <laughs> <laughs> she wants yeah. to play. You know, I, I've been told by uh, recently by a newspaper friend that I flunked retirement, that, uh, that I retired and uh, got involved in a, a lot of community organizations doing volunteer work and the things that are dear to my heart, and then uh, and then I started working on on the book, and it's been uh, five and a half years of working on the book, um, four years of of researching it and writing it, and I think there were twelve different drafts before it was over with. And my wife, the newspaper copy editor, uh, had to read every doggone one of them, which mm-hmm. she keeps reminding me. And then uh, a year and a half of promotion after it. It was published, and it had been a, a difficult promotion because of COVID. I had a oh right, I had a, yeah. I, you know, the murder occurred in Indiana, and I had a, a a mini book tour that I arranged in Indiana in all of the cities that that were involved in this, and that got canceled because because of COVID. And I I did them virtually. You know, I, I've done something like thirty four programs, but but. Um, you don't sell many books in a virtual program, I, as opposed to being there in person and selling books. Uh, so no, I, and I had a subject. We covered a, a murder of a small town mayor in 1984. And at one point early in this project, I said, Oh, I'm going to, I'm going to do this one next. This is, this is something that I, I know the attorneys. The attorneys are uh, on both sides are still alive. Another newspaper man who covered the case, he's still alive. The case made the cover of Parade Magazine back when Parade Magazine was a, mm-hmm. was a, a pretty substantial newspaper supplement. And I, I want to do that. I certainly am not going to do that now. I, I need to, nice I like to go back and yeah, do some more newspaper writing and, uh, and things like that. Articles. Short articles. There you go. I'm heavily involved in the promotion of Route 66 locally here in in, uh, Lebanon, Missouri. And I'm constantly writing um, articles. I would like to do some more in-depth things on Route 66. We'll we'll see where it goes. That's fantastic. You know, as you were talking now, I think that you say there's no hero in this story. Right. I think maybe Helen is the hero in the story. (laughs) Because she read all that, yeah. Mm -hmm. I think she's the hero in the story. Yeah. Well, we were partners. We worked together in the newspaper business in just about every place. Not every place we were. Once for six years, we were competitors on mm-hmm. daily newspapers in uh, in Southern Illinois. Oh, that's but, great. Uh, good for you guys. Yeah, we owned three newspapers together and and worked together. We're a pretty good team. I think that's fantastic, Gary. Thank you so much. I cannot tell you how much I appreciate you sitting down and talking with me about this. I said I loved your book. I will. 
I will love it forever and I will appreciate you forever. Really, it has been terrific. Thank you very much. Appreciate all your support. Oh, I will continue to support it. I try to pick books that are really, I think, the cream of the crop. So you are included in my humble selection of those I think are really the best in true crime. Thank you so much. Thank you. You are welcome. And that concludes episode 33 of The Potato Masher Murder by Gary Sosnacki. Join us next time for The Bike Path Killer by Mackie Becker and Michael Beebe. The Bike Path Killer terrorized Buffalo, New York area for 14 years, mercilessly raping and killing his prey, and then eluding law enforcement at every turn. And then he seemed to vanish. Was he done? Locked up? Dead? Read along with me and cuddle up, because this is a page-turner that left me incredibly uneasy. Oh my God, what a story. And pick up the Potato Masher Murder. Thank you for listening. Please leave a five-star review and buy me a coffee. Yes, I am now on Buy Me a Coffee, Murder Shelf, BKCB site. The link is on my blog. This will really help me grow my podcast and find new murder bookies. Reach out to me on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter. Shoot me an email at jill at murdershelfbookclub.com. I'd love to hear from you. Follow or subscribe to our show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, Podbean, wherever you listen to your podcasts. Let our episodes pop right into your feed. Source material and snack and drink information for the Potato Master Trilogy are found on my blog at www.murdershelfbookclub.com. Until next time, murder bookies. Happy reading. Trust your guts. Written and produced by Jill, all rights reserved. Music by Carl Hosina and lyrics by Otto Harbeck.